Section number eight of Four and Twenty Fairy Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Darby. VoiceOverPeteDarby.com. Perfect Love by the Countess de Morin. Translated by James Planchet. Part two. It was autumn. The night was beautiful, and the moon, with a host of brilliant stars, illuminated the sky, shedding around a more charming light than that of day. The prince eagerly advanced to meet his beloved. There was no time for long speeches. Parsin Parsinet tenderly kissed the hand of Hirolite and assisted her to mount her horse. Fortunately, she rode admirably. It was one of the amusements she had taken pleasure in during her captivity. She had frequently ridden with her attendants in a little wood close to the chateau she resided in, and of which the fairy allowed her the range. Parsin Parsinet, after the interchange of a few words with the princess, mounted his own horse. The other two were for Mana and the faithful slave. The prince, then drawing the brilliant sabre he had received from the fairy, swore on it to adore the beautiful Irolite as long as he should live, and to die, if it were necessary, in defending her from her enemies. They then set out, and it seemed as if the Zephyrs were in league with them, or that they mistook Irolite for Flora, for they accompanied them in their flight. Morning disclosed to Dinamo the unexpected event. The ladies in attendance on Irolite were surprised that she slept so much later than usual, but, in obedience to the orders the prudent Mana had given them overnight, they did not venture to enter the princess's apartment without being summoned by her. Mana slept in Irolite's chamber, and they had quitted it by a small door that opened into a courtyard of the palace, that was very little frequented. This door was in Irolite's cabinet. It had been fastened up, but with a little trouble, in two or three evenings, they had found means to open it. The queen, at length, sent orders for Irolite to come to her. The fairy's commands were not to be disobeyed by any one. They accordingly knocked at the chamber door of the princess. They received no answer. Prince Ormond arrived. He came to conduct Irolite to the queen, and was much surprised to find them knocking loudly at the door. He caused it to be broken open. They entered, and finding the little door of the cabinet had been forced— no longer doubted that the princess had fled the palace. They bore these tidings to the queen, who trembled with rage at hearing them. She ordered a search to be made everywhere for Irolite, but in vain did they endeavour to obtain a clue to her evasion. No one knew anything about it. Prince Ormond himself set out in pursuit of Irolite. The fairy's guards were dispatched in all haste, and in every direction it was thought possible she might have taken— it was observed, however, by Azir, that amidst this general agitation, Parsin Pansinet had not made his appearance. She sent an urgent message to him, and jealousy opening her eyes, she felt certain that the prince had carried off Eolite, though she had not until that moment suspected he was in love with her. The fairy could not believe it, but she hastened to consult her books, and discovered that Azir's suspicion— was but too well founded. 
In the meanwhile, that princess, having learned that Parsin Parsinet was not in his apartments, and could not be found anywhere in the palace, sent someone to the chateau in which Irolite had so long resided, to see if they could find any evidence that would convince or acquit the prince. The prudent Mana had taken care to leave nothing in it that could betray the understanding that had existed between Irolite and Parsin Parsinet, but they found near the seat on which the prince had lain so long insensible— the scarf Azir had given to him. It had been unfastened during his swoon, and the prince and Mana, absorbed in their grief, had neither of them subsequently observed it. What were the feelings of the haughty Azir at the sight of this scarf? Her love and her pride were equally wounded. She was exasperated beyond measure. She flung into the fairies' prisons all who had been in the service of Irolite or of the prince. Parsen Parsinet's ingratitude to the queen also goaded her naturally furious temper into madness, and she would have willingly parted with one of her kingdoms to be revenged on the two lovers. Meanwhile the fugitives were hotly pursued. Ormon and his troop found everywhere fresh horses in readiness for them by the fairies' orders. Those of Pansin Basinet were fatigued, and their speed no longer answered to the impatience of their master. As they issued from a forest, Ormond appeared in sight. The first impulse of the young prince was to attack his unworthy rival. He was spurring towards him with his hand on the hilt of his sword, when Irolite exclaimed, "'Prince! Rush not into useless danger! Obey the orders of Favorable!' These words calmed the anger of Pansin Basinet and, in obedience to his princess and to the fairy, he wished that the beautiful Irolite was safe from the persecution of the cruel queen. He had scarcely formed the wish, when the earth opened beneath him and Ormond, and presented to his sight a little misshapen man, in a very magnificent dress, who made a sign to him to follow him. The descent was easy on his side. He rode down it accompanied by the fair Irolite, Mana and the faithful slave followed them, and the earth reclosed above them. Ormond, astonished at so extraordinary an event, returned with all speed to inform Danamo. Meanwhile, our young lovers followed the little man down the very dark road, and at the end of which they found a vast palace, lighted only by a great quantity of lamps and flambeaux. They were desired to dismount, and entered a hall of prodigious magnitude. The roof was supported by columns of shining earth covered with golden ornaments. The walls were of the same material. A little man, all covered with jewels, was seated at the end of the hall on a golden throne, surrounded by a great number of persons as misshapen as the one who had conducted the prince to that spot. As soon as the latter appeared, leading the charming Irolite, the little man arose from his throne and said, "'Approach, prince, the great fairy Favorable." who has long been a friend of mine, has requested me to save you from the cruelties of Danamo. I am the king of the gnomes. You and the fair princess who accompanies you are welcome to my palace. Parsin Parsinet thanked him for the succour he had afforded him. The king and all his subjects were enchanted with the beauty of Irolite. They looked upon her as a star that had descended to illuminate their abode. A magnificent banquet was served up to the prince and princess. The king of the gnomes did the honours. Music of a very melodious, though somewhat barbaric, character formed the entertainment of the evening. They sang the charms of Irolite, and the following verses were frequently repeated. 
what lovely star hath left its sphere this subterranean realm to cheer beware for in its dazzling light is more than danger to the sight the while its lustre we admire it sets the gazer's heart on fire after the concert the prince and princess were each conducted to magnificent apartments mana and the faithful slave attended on them the next morning they were shown all over the king's palace he was master of all the treasures contained in the bosom of the earth it was impossible to add to his riches they presented a confused mass of beautiful things but art was wanting everywhere the prince and princess remained for a week in this subterranean region such was the order of favorable to the king of the gnomes during this time entertainments were made for the princess and her lover which though not very tasteful were exceedingly magnificent the eve of their departure the king to commemorate their sojourn in his empire caused statues of them to be erected one on each side of his throne they were of gold and the pedestals of white marble the following inscription formed with diamonds was upon the pedestal of the prince's statue we desire no longer to behold the sun we have seen this prince he is more beautiful and more brilliant and on that of the princess were these words formed in a similar manner to the immortal glory of the goddess of beauty she descended to this spot under the form and name of Igolite. the ninth day they presented the prince with the most beautiful horses in the world their harness was of gold entirely covered with diamonds he quitted the gloomy abode of the gnomes with his little troop after having expressed his gratitude to the king he found himself again on the very spot where ormond had confronted him he looked at his ring and perceived that only the silver and brazen portions of it were discernible he resumed his journey with the charming Igolite and made all speed to reach the abode of favorable where at length they might feel themselves in safety when all on a sudden as they emerged from a valley they encountered a troop of Dinamo's guards, who had not given up the pursuit. The soldiers prepared to rush upon them, when the prince wished, and instantly a large piece of water appeared between the party of Batsan Batsinet and that of the fairy. A beautiful nymph, half-naked in a little boat made of interwoven rushes, was seen in the middle of it. She approached the shore, and requested the prince and princess to enter the boat. Mana and the slave followed them. The horses remained in the plain, and the little boat suddenly sinking, the fairy's guards believed that the fugitives had perished in their attempt to escape. But at the same moment they found themselves in a palace, the walls of which were only great sheets of water, which incessantly falling with perfect regularity formed halls, apartments, cabinets, and surrounded gardens, in which a thousand fountains of the most extraordinary shapes marked out the lines of the parterre. Only the naiads, in whose empire they were, could inhabit this palace, as beautiful as it was singular. To offer, therefore, a more substantial dwelling to the prince and the fair Irolite, the naiad, who was their conductor, led them into some grottoes of shell-work, where coral, pearls, and all the treasures of the deep were seen in dazzling profusion. The beds were of moss. An hundred dolphins guarded the grotto of Irolite, and twenty whales that of Balsan Parsinet. The naiads admired the beauty of the princess, and more than one triton was jealous of the looks and attentions which were bestowed on the young prince. They served up in the grotto of the princess a superb collation composed of all sorts of iced fruits. 
twelve sirens endeavoured with their sweet and charming songs to calm the anxiety of young prince and the fair Ilorite. The concert finished with these verses. Wherever with love for our leader we stray, to render us happy he knows the sweet way. Rejoice, perfect lovers, who hear in his name, the floods may defy to extinguish your flame. In the evening there was a banquet, at which nothing was served but fish, but of most extraordinary size and exquisite flavour. After the banquet the naiads danced a ballet in dresses of fish scales of various colours, which had the most beautiful effect in the world. The horns of tritons, and other instruments unknown to mortals, performed the music which, though strange, was novel and very agreeable. Parsin Parsinet and the beautiful Irolite remained four days in this empire. Such were the commands of Favorable. The fifth day the naiads assembled in crowds to escort the prince and princess. The two lovers were placed in a little boat made of a single shell, and the naiads, half out of the water, accompanied them as far as the border of a river, where Parsin Parsinet found his horses waiting for him, and recommenced his journey with the more haste, as he perceived, on examining his ring, that the silver had disappeared, and that nothing remained but the brass. They were, however, but a short distance from the wished-for dwelling of the fairy Favorable. They travelled unmolested for three more days, but on the fourth morning they saw weapons glitter in the distance in the rays of the rising sun, and as those who bore them advanced they recognised Prince Ormond and his band. Danamo had sent them back in pursuit with orders not to leave them when seen again, nor to quit the spot where anything extraordinary might occur to them, and above all things to endeavour to engage Pansan Parsinet in single combat. Danamo had correctly imagined, from the account of Ormond, that a fairy protected the prince and princess, but her science was so great that she did not despair of conquering by spells more potent than her antagonist could cast around them. Ormond, delighted at beholding again the prince and Irolite, whom he had sought with so much toil and anxiety, galloped sword in hand to encounter Pansin Pansinet according to the commands of the fairy. The young prince also drew his sabre with so fierce an air that Ormond more than once felt inclined to waver in his course. But Parsin Parsinet, observing Irolite bathed in tears, touched at the sight, formed his fourth wish, and instantly a great fire, rising almost to the clouds, separated him from his enemy. This fire made Ormond and his troop fall back, while the young prince and Irolite, closely followed by the faithful slave and the prudent Mana, found themselves in a palace, the first sight of which greatly alarmed the fair Irolite. It was entirely of flame but her alarm subsided as she perceived that she felt no more heat than from the rays of the sun, and that this flame had only the brilliancy and blaze of fire, without its more insupportable qualities. Crowds of young and beautiful personages, in dresses over which light flames appeared to wanton, presented themselves to receive the princess and her lover. One amongst them, who they imagined to be the queen of those regions, by the respect that was paid to her, accosted them, saying, "'Come, charming princess, and you also, handsome Parsen Parsinet.' You are in the kingdom of salamanders. I am its queen, and it is with pleasure I have undertaken to conceal you for seven days in my palace, according to the commands of the fairy Favorable. I would only that your stay here might be of longer duration. After these words they were led into a large apartment all of flames, like the rest of the palace, and in which a light shone brighter than that of day. The queen gave that evening a grand supper, composed of every delicacy and well served. After the feast they repaired to a terrace, 
to witness a display of fireworks of marvellous beauty and great singularity of design, which were let off in a large courtyard of the Palace of Salamanders. Twelve cupids were seen upon as many columns of various coloured marbles. Six of them appeared to be drawing their bows, and the other six bore a large shield, on which these words were written in letters of fire. Irolite, that matchless fair, conqueror is everywhere. In vain our flaming arrows fly. Those that issue from her eye burn more fiercely, yet are found cherished in the hearts they wound. The young princess blushed at her own fame, and Parsin Parsinet was enchanted that the salamanders considered her as beautiful as she appeared to him. Meanwhile, the cupids shot their flaming arrows, which, crossing each other in the air, formed in a thousand places the initials of the lovely name of Eolite, and rose up to the heavens. The seven days she remained in the palace were passed in similar pleasures. Parsin Parsinet remarked that all the salamanders were witty and charmingly vivacious, very gallant and affectionate. The queen herself appeared not to be exempt from the influence of the tender passion, but to be enamoured of a young salamander of wonderful beauty. The eighth day they quitted with regret a retreat so congenial to their feelings. They found themselves in a lovely country. Parsin Parsinet looked at his ring and discovered engraved upon the metals— which were now all four mixed together, the following words. You have wished too soon. These words sadly afflicted the prince and princess, but they were now so near the abode of the fairy Favorable that they were in hope of arriving there before evening. This reflection consoled them, and they proceeded invoking fortune and love, but alas, they are frequently treacherous conductors. Palsan Parsinet was, in short, on the point of entering the dominions of the fairy Favorable, but Ormond, obeying the commands of Danamo, had not retired far from the spot where the fire had risen between him and his rival. He had encamped, with his party, behind a wood, and his sentinels, who kept incessant watch, brought him word that the prince and princess had reappeared in the plain. He ordered his men to mount, and about sunset encountered the unfortunate prince and the divine Eurolite. Parsin Parsinet was not dismayed at the numbers that fell upon him altogether. He charged them with a courage that daunted them. "'I fulfil my promise to beautiful Irolite,' he exclaimed as he drew his sabre. "'I will die for you or deliver you from your enemies.' With these words he made a blow at the foremost and felled him to the earth. But, oh, unexpected misfortune, the wonderful sabre which was the gift of the fairy Dinamo flew into a thousand pieces.' She had foreseen this result of the combat. Whenever she made a present of weapons, she charmed them in so peculiar a manner that the instant they were employed against her, the first blow shivered them to pieces. Parsin Parsinet, then disarmed, could not make any prolonged resistance. He was overwhelmed by numbers taken, laden with chains, and the young Irolite shared his fate. "'Ah, fairy favorable!' mournfully ejaculated the prince. "'Abandon me to all the severity of Danamo, but save the fair Irolite!' "'You have disobeyed the fairy,' replied a youth of surprising beauty, who appeared in the air. "'You must suffer the penalty. "'Had you not been so prodigal of her favour, "'we should to-day have saved you for ever from the cruelties of Danamo. "'All the empire of the sylphs laments being deprived of the glory "'of securing happiness to so charming a prince and so beautiful a princess.' "'So saying, he vanished, "'and Parsin Parsinet groaned at the recollection of his imprudence. 
he seemed insensible to his own misfortunes, but how deeply did he feel those of Hippolyte! His remorse at having been the cause of them would have destroyed him, had not destiny resolved that he should live to suffer still more cruel agony. The young Irolite displayed a courage worthy of the illustrious race from which she had descended, and the pitiless Ormond, far from being affected at so touching a spectacle, strove to aggravate the misery he occasioned them. He had the prisoners separated, and so deprived them of the melancholy pleasure of mingling their tears over their departed hopes. Their wretched journey ended, they were taken to the palace of the wicked fairy. She felt a malignant joy at seeing the young prince and princess in a state that would have awakened pity in the heart of any other creature. Even Azira commiserated Parzen Parsinet, but did not dare evince it before the fairy. "'I shall at length, then,' said the cruel queen, addressing herself to the prince, "'have the pleasure of revenging myself for thy ingratitude. Go! In lieu of ascending to the throne, my father had destined thee, enter the prison on the sea.' in which thou shalt end thy wretched life in frightful tortures. "'I prefer the most horrible dungeon,' replied the prince, looking proudly at her, "'to the favours of so unjust a queen as thou art.' These words increased the irritation of the fairy. She had expected to see him humble himself at her feet. She sent him instantly to the prison she had fixed upon. Irolite wept as he was dragged away. Azir could not suppress her sighs, and all the court mourned in secret at the merciless sentence. As for the beautiful Irolite, the queen had her removed to the chateau, in which she had previously so long resided, placed a strict guard upon her, and treated her with all the inhumanity of which she was capable. The prison to which they conveyed the prince was a frightful tower in the midst of the sea, built on a little desert island. They shut him up in it, laden with irons, and treated him with all the severity imaginable. What an abode for a prince worthy to reign over the universe! To think of Irolite was his sole occupation. He invoked the help of the fairy Favorable for his dear princess alone, and wished a thousand times a day to expiate by death the only injury he had done her. His faithful slave had been consigned to the same prison, but he had not the satisfaction of serving his illustrious master and Parsin Parsinet had about him none but fierce soldiers, devoted to the fairy, who nevertheless, while obeying her orders, respected, despite themselves, the unfortunate captive. His youth, his beauty, and above all, his courage, excited in them an admiration which compelled them to regard him as a man very superior to all others. The prudent Mana had been dragged to the chateau in which they had immured Irolite, as the prince's faithful slave had been to the prison on the sea. Danamo's women alone approached the princess, and by the fairy's orders overwhelmed her every moment with new misery by their accounts of the sufferings of Parsin Parsinet. The distress of her lover made Irolite forget her own, and everything renewed her tears in that spot where she had so often heard that charming prince swear to her eternal fidelity. Alas, she murmured to herself, why have you been so faithful, my dear prince? Your inconstancy would have killed me, but what of that? You would have lived and been happy. After three months' suffering, Dinamo, who had employed that period in the preparation of a spell of extraordinary power, sent to Irolite one morning a couple of lamps, one of gold, the other of crystal, commanding her to keep one of the two always burning, but leaving her to choose which she would light. 
Irolite, with her natural docility, sent word that she would obey the fairy's orders without even seeking to comprehend their object. She carried the two lamps carefully to a cabinet. The golden one was lighted when she received it, and therefore she allowed it to burn throughout that day and night, and the next morning she lighted the other. In this manner she continued to obey the fairy, lighting the lamps alternately for fifteen days, when her health became seriously affected. She attributed her failing strength to her sorrow, and to increase her grief, they informed her that Parsin Parsinet was exceedingly ill. What tidings for Irolite! Her deep distress, her utter prostration, affected all her attendants. One evening, when the rest were asleep, one of them softly approached the princess, and seeing her about to light the crystal lamp, said to her, "'Extinguish that fatal light. Your existence depends upon it. Save the life of one so lovely from the cruel designs of Dinamo.' "'Alas!' feebly replied the wretched Irolite. "'She has rendered my life so miserable.' that it is but kind of the fairy to afford me such a means of ending it. But, added she, with an emotion which brought back the colour to her pale cheeks, what life depends upon the golden lamp, which I have been equally careful to light in its turn? That of Padzan Basinet, answered the confidant of Donamo, for the woman was but obeying her orders in thus speaking to the princess. The wicked fairy wished to torment her by this revelation of the cruel task she had imposed upon her. At this intelligence her agony at having unconsciously hastened the termination of her lover's existence deprived her for some considerable time of her senses. On recovering them, she at the same time returned to her despair. "'Hateful fairy!' she exclaimed as soon as she had power to speak. "'Barbarous fairy! Will not my death satisfy thy vengeance?' Wouldst thou contemn me, inhuman, to destroy with my own hand a prince so dear to me, and so worthy of the most perfect and tender affection? But death, a thousand times more merciful than thou art, will soon deliver me from all the tortures which thy wrath hath invented to rack such fond and faithful hearts. The young princess wept incessantly over the fatal lamp, upon which depended the life of Parsin Parsinet, and from that moment only lighted the one that wasted her own. That she saw burn with joy, regarding it as a sacrifice to love and to her lover. In the meanwhile the wretched prince was prey to tortures which surpassed even his powers of endurance. By command of the fairy, one of his guards, feigning to pity the misfortunes of the illustrious prisoner, informed him that Irolite had consented to marry Prince Ormond. A few days after, he, Parsin Parsinet, had been consigned to the frightful dungeon in which he still languished. That the princess had appeared quite happy since her marriage, that she had been present at all the entertainments given in celebration of it, and had finally quitted the country with her husband. This was the only misfortune the prince had not anticipated— and it was also the only one too heavy for him to bear. "'What?' he exclaimed despairingly. "'Thou art faithless to me, dear Aeolite. Thou art the bride of Ormond. Thou hast not even pitied my misfortunes. Thou hast but thought how to end those my love brought upon thyself. Thou hast not even pitied my misfortunes. Thou hast but thought how to end those my love brought upon thyself. Live, happy, ungrateful Aeolite, Inconstant as thou art, I still adore thee, and desire but to die for love, as thou wouldst not I should have the glory of dying for thee. 
Whilst Parcin Parcinet was plunged in this affliction, and the tender Irolite wasted her own life to prolong that of her lover, Dinamo was moved by the despair of Azir, who was dying with sorrow for the sufferings of Parcin Parcinet. The cruel fairy perceived at length that, to save the life of her child, it was necessary to pardon the prince, and to permit Azir to visit him, and to promise him all the benefits that had previously awaited him, provided he consented to marry her, and the fairy determined to put Irolite to death the moment the prince had accepted that offer. The hope of again beholding Parsin Parsinet restored Azir to life, and the fairy allowed her to send to Irolite's chateau for the golden lamp, which she desired to keep in her own custody, that she might be certain that it was not lighted. This mandate seemed more cruel than all the others to the affected Irolite. What anxiety did she not endure respecting the fate of Parsin Parsinet? "'Do not distress yourself so much about the prince,' said the women in attendance upon her. "'He is going to marry the Princess Azir, and it is she who, interested in the preservation of his life, has sent for the lamp upon which it depends.' The torments of jealousy had as yet been wanting to complete the misery of the unfortunate Irolite. At these words she felt them waking in her heart. In the meanwhile Azir had visited the prince and offered him her hand and her kingdoms. Then, pretending to be ignorant that he had been told that Irolite had married Ormond, she endeavoured to convince him by citing this example— that he had been more than sufficiently constant. Parsin Parsinet, to whom nothing was valuable without the charming Irolite, preferred his prison and his sufferings to liberty and sovereignty. Azir was distracted at his refusal, and her affliction rendered her almost as unhappy as he was. During this time the fairy Favorable, who had hitherto boasted of her insensibility to love, had found it impossible to resist the attractions of a young prince residing at her court. He had conceived a passion for her. The fairy had considerable difficulty in bringing herself to let him know that his attentions had conquered her pride. At length, however, she yielded to the desire of acquainting him with his triumph. The pleasure of conversing with those we love appeared to her then so charming and so desirable that, excusing the fault she had so severely punished, she repaired, in all haste, to the assistance of Balsen Parsinet and the beautiful Irolite. A little later, and her aid would have been useless. The fatal lamp of Irolite had but six days longer to burn, and the grief of Parsin Parsinet was rapidly terminating his existence when the fairy Favorable arrived at the palace of Dinamo. She was by far the most powerful, and made herself obeyed despite the anger of the wicked fairy. The prince was released from prison, but he would not quit it until he was assured by Favorable that the fair Irolite might still be his bride. He appeared, notwithstanding his pallor, more beautiful than the day, the light of which he was once more permitted to behold. He repaired with the fairy Favorable to the chateau of his princess. Her lamp emitted but a feeble light, and the dying Irolite would not allow them to extinguish it until she had been assured of the fidelity of her now happy lover. There are no words capable of expressing the perfect joy experienced by the fond pair at this meeting. The fairy Favorable restored them in an instant to all their former health and beauty, and endowed them with long life and constant felicity. Their affection she found it impossible to increase. Dinamo, furious at beholding her authority thus overthrown, perished by her own hand. The fate of Azir and Ormond was left by the prince to the decision of Irolite. 
The only vengeance she took upon them was uniting them in marriage, and Parcin Parcinet, as generous as he was constant, would only receive his father's kingdom, leaving Aziel to reign over those of Dinamo. The nuptials of the prince and the divine Irolite were celebrated with infinite magnificence, and after duly expressing their gratitude to the fairy Favorabla, and heaping rewards on the slave in the prudent manner, they departed for their kingdom, where the prince and the charming Irolite enjoyed the rare happiness of loving as fondly and truly in prosperity as they had done in adversity. End of section number eight. Recording by Peter Darby. Voiceover Pete Darby dot com